We wanted to make sure if we were shut down for 60 days by the U.S. government, we could pay our employees, right, our associates. Yes. And in fact, the DOT invented the rankings of the airlines because Continental was so bad. That's a true story. Sort of indirect command there that we've got to be first. Uh, first or last, as, as uh, the famous Ricky Bobby said. What's the saying? If you owe a little, the bank owns you. If you owe a lot, you own the bank. That's so right. We, we actually own the bank. <laughs> we were in pretty bad shape. It's really what tithing is. It's really fasting from money so it doesn't become a controller. It can be a, a wonderful servant or a relentless master. I'm Rick Walker. I'm sitting down with some of my most captivating friends to discuss topics ranging from politics and business to religion and pop culture. Welcome to Conversations at the Mansion. Greg Brenneman, welcome to the Mansion. Thanks. It's great to be here, Rick. It's nice to be here with you today. Great, great, great to have you. Great to have you. Well, let's jump right into business. Uh, I want to. I want to get a little bit of, of your background. Uh, you started off education-wise, uh, I guess, after undergrad school at at Harvard, and then you ended up at Bain as your first consulting gig. But so, could you kind of walk us through that through that process, that that time of your life? Yeah, absolutely. No, I uh, I grew up in a small Kansas farm town. So uh, in a Mennonite farm town, I grew up Mennonite. So I have sub Amish relatives and learned how to work really hard and to treat people with dignity and respect there. And then uh, I actually left to go to school in the big city of Topeka, Kansas and went to Washburn University. So I, I actually am kind of rolling uh, with no real mascots. So my, uh, the first mascot at Heston where I was, it was a farm town and uh, there was a big company there that made swathers, hay swathers. Okay. And so we were the Heston swathers. So our mascot was a piece of farm equipment. And then I went to Washburn and we were the Washburn Ichabods. <laughs> after Ichabod Washburn, so our mascot was this man with this tall hat. So I'm still looking uh, to get to a, a place with a good mascot, but I went to those, and then after that I went and got my CPA. I had my CPA coming out of undergrad. Okay. And uh, went and worked at an accounting firm called Arthur Anderson, which is kind of doesn't exist anymore. Yes. It's been kind of merged and, and combined. It used to be the big eight, and now it's the big four. And after that, went back to Harvard Business School, got my MBA, and went to work at Bain uh, many years ago. Uh, uh, when Mitt Romney was running the firm. So uh, got to you know, spend some time with Mitt you know, and others uh, doing that, became a partner at Bain. And about two years into my tenure at Bain, three of us left uh, Boston and opened Bain's Dallas office. Okay. And so that's, that's a big how, office now. That's a really big office. Yeah, we went from three of us to, I don't know, 120 in like three years. So it was, it was really fast growing. It's a big office. It's now Dallas and Houston. Uh, so they've come to Houston as well. And uh, and my son ended up working there for about 10 years, uh, you know, many years after, after I did. He just left last year. And, uh, and I was uh, doing turnarounds at Bain, so taking companies that were really broken and kind of was leading Bain's turnaround practice. And um, the, one of my clients was Continental Airlines when it was in just terrible shape. It was the 10th place airline. You know, it was 10th out of 10 in on-time performance, 10th out of 10 in baggage handling had uh, you know, 10 out of 10 in customer complaints, had 10 presidents in 10 years, wow. and uh, was working to help turn that around. These days at Continental, you can see the changes. Something new here. A renewed sense of pride there. The fact is, we've been listening to you, and it's showing. Look, the way we act, 
and especially in the way we serve you. And then uh, uh, David Bonderman, who owned Continental at the time, was the only deal he had. Uh, out of the Bass, uh, had left the Bass Brothers to do it, called and, um, and asked me if I would be, uh, be president of Continental. And uh, so at 32, I uh, took a leave of absence from Bain initially and then formally left uh, uh, to become president of Continental Airlines. So that's kind of my, yeah. you know, yeah. that, a quick stair step into how I started doing crazy things like turning around companies and, and, uh, and having some fun doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so funny, funny thing, um, we interviewed Senator Michael Lee last week, mm -hmm. and he'll actually, we're going to release his video in the next 24 hours as well. You mentioned Mitt Romney. So I'm trying to convince Senator Lee uh, to pull rank with Mitt Romney. Of course, Senator Lee is 25 years younger than Mitt Romney. Yeah. He's the senior senator of Utah, and Mitt Romney is the junior senator. Yeah. And he refuses to pull rank. Mm -hmm. He said, I think he said Mitt, Mitt likes to make the joke that um, any, anytime he can have the word junior in his title, he'll, he'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, they're a pretty good combination because I think they bring a couple different perspectives to, to the state and both incredible senators. So. Definitely, definitely. You, you sort of wonder what direction the state's trending. They, they are opposite ends of the conservative spectrum. No, they very much are. Yeah, no, they, 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 they truly are. But uh, yeah, I respect both of those guys. They're both uh, incredible yeah. Yeah. So. so growing up in Kansas, did you have uh, that influence that, that's there right now with the Koch brothers? Were they were they really big back then, or was that? Yeah, no. Uh, so um, where I grew up in Heston was about 20 minutes from where uh, the you know where Wichita is, Wichita, where the yeah, Kochs yeah. are, and uh, they've certainly be, were influential and have become more influential. But it was a real town of entrepreneurs that whole area. So. My great uncle Lyle Yost, which who was my first mentor, he gave me my first job in the third grade. Uh, he actually, if you ask him what his mission in life was, he would say it was to mechanize things for farmers. Wow. And so when he was a kid, he used to, when they bailed hay, he used to have to take loose hay with a pitchfork and throw it on the back of a wagon. And he, he invented the first hay baler. And then he invented those, the machines that make the big round bales and the big square bales, you see. And he turned that into a Fortune 500 company in Heston. And uh, he also taught himself how to fly, so he was a, a pilot. And if you ask him what his purpose in life, what God called him to do, he'd tell you it was to give away all his money before he died. Wow. And so he developed this missional approach of faith at work, and he thought if you create jobs for people, you'd earn the ability to speak into their lives. And so um, he, uh, he started the largest, what's still the largest dairy in Latin America, completely as an exercise to create jobs. Uh, for people that, that didn't. He built the Aspen Chapel in Aspen, Colorado. If you go to Aspen, there's mm -hmm. a chapel in the middle of town. And yeah. uh, it's dedicated to my grandfather and to uh, uh, my great uncle, both of who were preachers. Uh, and so just an amazing individual. But Uncle Lyle was pretty good friends with Fred Koch, who started Koch, but also with the Gates brothers from Gates Learjet and the Cessna brothers. Uh, and then later, a little bit later on, Frank Carney started Pizza Hut mm -hmm. in Wichita. So it was this kind of pot of entrepreneurs and just a ton of businesses kind of spawned out of that, that group of uh, entrepreneurial uh, individuals. But my great uncle was very much a, you know, part of uh, a part of that, and uh, and just an amazing human being. Sure, sure, and, and of course, uh, when F I think Fred Koch died, Charles Koch took over from Charles took over from Fred, uh, and uh, you know I still stay in touch with uh, with uh, the Koch uh, family. I saw Charles maybe three months ago oh, went wow. to Wichita and and spent some time with him and uh, his senior management team. A lot of the folks, they're incredible individuals and human beings. 
uh, many of them I went to high school with. So uh, I, our high school graduating class was 61, uh, as the Heston Swathers, and uh, uh, of his top five uh, guys, a couple are uh, from my high school graduating class and, uh, and uh, from that era, you know, right around when I graduated. And then uh, uh, a couple more, you know, went to places like Emporia State and, uh, and have done just amazing things. But it's a, it's a group of really homegrown uh, individuals that Charles uh, has mentored over a long period of time. Sure, sure, and, and, and it seems like there's a direct correlation between his strategy and your strategy, because he's known as being the CEO mentor. When he yeah. wrote these businesses, the Georgia Pacific guys, they'd bring in their MBM philosophies and they would, they would, they would roll it out. And uh, I remember, uh, and I, I do want to talk about your Sunday morning small group. I know yeah. Kyle Van is part of yeah. that, who yeah. used to be CEO of Coke Energy. Yeah. And it was also, I think he was mentored a little bit by Charles Coke. Yeah, Charles, he was really Charles' right-hand man for many, many years before he ended up at, at, at Coke Energy, at, you know, as well. And so uh, and Kyle and I went back together. And uh, it's like a homecoming for Kyle, for sure, to, to, yeah. to, see, to see Charles and, and the team. So, so, so Kyle and I were having breakfast one morning, and Kyle's been, uh, been mentoring me for, for a while, uh, probably over the last, I don't know, 12 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, he tells me the story where he walks into Charles Koch's office, and I guess he shows up once a month for this sort of uh, leadership meeting with, with, uh, with Charles. And uh, Charles handed him the book. It was Ludwig von Mises's Human Action Books, which is 1,200 pages, mm -hmm. if someone's not familiar with that. It's a 1,200-page book. And uh, he said, well, I'll see you in two weeks. I think is what he said. I'll see you in two weeks, and, and we'll, we'll discuss it. Yeah. And so, uh, and so, so he had, I mean, he's running these businesses. I think he's training other CEOs as well. But he's also has his homework assignment to read this 1,200-page book on uh, Austrian economics. Yeah. Now, Charles is a, a big thinker, right? Yeah. Uh, he very much is. And Austrian economics has That's been right. his passion, I think, for a very long time. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's been very philanthropic as well. He, you know, sometimes you, when you get into the press, you never know how people are going to spin things. And, uh, uh, but he's, he and his brothers have uh, done a lot of good in the world as, uh, as well uh, with their philanthropy. But, uh, but he is, uh, he's a libertarian for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, uh, Greg, I, I want to give you a gift uh, just, just to thank you before, before we get started here. So, one of the one of the elements of the of the show is is fashion and design, and so I try to give everyone a little bit of a gift that they would that they wouldn't expect. That's why you're so dapper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So so this this oh, is for thank you. you. Um, and, and so so we all we always give a, a, couple, a couple of rules with the gift. Yeah. So these are only to be worn with jeans okay. or joggers. Okay. And so um, I don't know if you if you want to take it yeah, out. And, can and, I uh, yeah. open these up yeah, and take yeah. a look? And I texted Andrew for your shoe size. Oh, and... fantastic. Look at those. Yeah, I would say probably not with suits, but it, they, they actually look like they could make it work. Well, thank you very much. Yes, yes, yes. You're I'll welcome. enjoy these. You're welcome. You're welcome. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And so the politicians, nice. the politicians, yeah. you got to stay under twenty dollars or whatever the federal yeah, limit yeah. is. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> so one of the funny things is, is when I sort your uh, your YouTube history uh, by most views, I think the number one um, uh, the top the top watch video was an interview you did at Ukrainian Society with Bill and Cody Nath. Uh -huh. So Cody Nath, okay. I, I had breakfast with Cody once a month. Oh, he was good. actually over here forty eight hours ago, and I mentioned that you were coming in. He kind of got kicked out of, out of that. But uh, but Bill Nath and then Kyle Van and I think Hal Chappelle, Hal Chappelle and you yeah. have had the Sunday meet, morning meeting. You want, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So yeah. No, when I was about forty five, which was uh, I hate to say it, like fourteen fifteen years ago now, 
Um, I had come back from uh, having, you know, worked with great teams to do the turnaround at Continental and then PwC Consulting and then Burger King and, and uh, all, all very successful. But I felt like, you know, going back to the example of my uncle Lyle and his dual mission of being successful in business and creating jobs, but also translating that, you know, to helping others. Uh, I'd felt like the church in Laodicea, you know, you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out, you know, Jesus says in Revelation. And, uh, and so I thought, I really need to actually, if I've been writing these one-page plans to turn around businesses, I need to see if I can write a one-page plan to turn around me. So I actually pulled out a sheet of paper and uh, just put what we call the five Fs, faith, family, friends, fitness, finance, and thought I'll list two or three things under each of those uh, that uh, are blue chips, essentially, are the things you want to accomplish in life uh, that won't necessarily make your daily to-do list, right? And so the first of those under faith I, I put, I want to become an intimate of God's, right? A.W. Tozer is a theologian, has a statement, God doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. And yes. so I was thinking, what are the few things I could write down there to sort of re- that would really make a long-term difference? And uh, the normal things are true. What do you read? What do you study? You know, are you spending time in the Bible? You know, are you, you know, you spending time in prayer? But um, one of the things I thought that would be beneficial to me, which guys are terrible at, and you know, me too, uh, are terrible at, is actually developing a close group of friends sure. that were CEOs could relate to uh, the problems that you kind of face running companies or, or you know, working in the business world. But we're also very strong believers and, and had good faith. So out of that actually came a small group. We call it after Proverbs 27, 17, you know, iron sharpens iron. Yeah. And we've been meeting for 14, 15 years now. And uh, so it's uh, Bill, Kyle, and Hal, as you mentioned, and myself. And uh, we meet uh, uh, usually Sunday mornings before church, actually as COVID hit. And, you know, we actually met a lot longer because, you know, we weren't kind of rushing to get done, sure. but we start at usually 6.30 or so in the morning and go till like 8.30, so a couple hours, and we either read something, or right now we're going through Tozer's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Knowledge of the Holy uh, oh, book. Yeah. It's a great book, but, you know, we listen to a lot of Tim Keller sermons. We've done a, a number of different things, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll just share life, yeah. do some scripture memory, but share life together, and uh, we've been doing that now for probably 40 weeks a month. I mean, with people on vacation and stuff, we miss occasionally, but uh, for 14, 15 years. And that's been, that's been a life changer. And anybody that, uh, whatever your age is, I wish I would not have waited till I was 45. Uh, but, uh, you know, if I can look back and say, you know, if you could start that in your 20s, it'd be pretty cool, right? You know, <laughs> right. Uh, to have that kind of close group of, uh, of friends. So, sure, uh, sure. So those guys are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I th- you mentioned Tozer. I think in that book is where he drops the line, it's not what you do that makes a man holy, it's why you do it. Yeah, no, and, he's got a lot of great lines in, in that. You know, is he, you know, that's another one that says what you, what you uh, think about God says more about you than it does about God. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so it's, yeah. A, yeah. it's a pretty impressive book. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's now would be a good time to just, just to jump straight straight into the book as well. Yeah. So, so you've got the, the book that center around, centers around this five-step go-forward plan, this turnaround yeah. plan. And you break the book up into alternating chapters, business or organizational turnaround and personal turnaround. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you walk us through the through the five steps and and why and why you chose those? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. So um, I really didn't set my goal out to ever write a book. Um, uh, 
I had, uh, after we'd done the turnaround to Continental, which was written up quite a bit in the, in the press, in the journal, and in the Harvard Business, business periodicals, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, I got a call uh, from, um, from Susie Wetlofer, who was actually, is, uh, now Susie Welsh, was Jack, ended up being Jack Welsh's wife. Wow. But um, uh, Susie and I went to business school together, and we were in the same, same year, and then we, we sat next to each other at Bain. So we both went to Bain oh, and wow. Company together. Wow. And so she was editor of the Harvard Business Review, and I was president at Continental. And she said, Greg, we have to write about, you know, how you guys did this, because, you know, I've been following it. I've been, you know, reading the press, and it would be a great you know, Harvard Business Review article. And I said, no, Susie, we really don't. And she kept bugging me, and, and finally she said, well, could you just send me something, and I'll play with it. And she was, not, people, most people don't know this, she was a romance novelist before uh, she came to Harvard, so wow. she was an uh, incredible writer, uh, different, you know, different genre. <laughs> but but um, uh, so I sent in what I thought was like pretty pathetic. You know, I spent a few hours jotting a few things down and sent it to her, and she sent back this just amazing uh, article that she had edited. Right, you know, edited. I put in, in loose quotes. She had done a great job with it. Called. Uh, right away and all at once, how we save Continental Airlines. And um, uh, so that was out there, and it became an HBS bestseller as people were thinking about, in their own cases, how to either turn their companies around or if their company was what I call satisfactorily underperforming, which I stole from my early days at yeah. Bain, that was a Bain term, uh, and could get better, you know, it, they were also applying it to that. And the way we actually uh, turned around Continental uh, is, uh, is re was really a five-step process, part of which had been developed when I was working at Bain doing turnarounds, essentially, and uh, doing it. And the first step of that was write a one-page plan. So have a plan and track your progress. And uh, so for every business I look at, I pull out a sheet of paper and I write, uh, I write uh, market, financial, product, and people, right? And, uh, and then under each of those categories, just four or five things that are the main value drivers that will really you know, transform a business, uh, either you know, tune it up or, or you know, completely turn it around. And so the airline is a great example. We tried to come up with catchy phrases for each of those. So the market plan was fly to win. Sure. You know, the first uh, uh, bullet under that was stop flying places people don't want to go. Uh, you know, so yeah, I could go on and on, but and then we uh, 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 fund the future was a financial uh, piece because we said if we don't have some funds, we're not going to have a future. We're almost bankrupt. That's right. And then make reliability reality. Uh, you know, was the you know product plan, and and we are so terrible. We are the tenth place rated airline. You know, for years and years. Uh, and in fact, the DOT invented the rankings of the airlines because Continental was so bad. That's a true story. Uh, and um, so we flipped that and said, we need to actually get people to their destination on time with their underwear, serve them good food when they're hungry, show them movies when they're bored, and yeah. do that 2,500 times a day. And then the last piece was the most important called working together, uh, which was the people plan. So having that plan, you know, four or five things under each of those four categories, no more than that, metric, so you could tell where you were, yeah. and rallying, uh, you know, 55,000 people around it. You know, really worked. Uh, the stock went from six to 120, and we were six years in a row where the best airline in America is measured by JD Power, and we went to first in the on-time performance, and uh, and became number 18 on the 100 best places to work in America. So, I mean, it was a, it was kind of magical. That was the kind of first piece. That the, the second piece uh, is build a fortress balance sheet, 
So it's essentially make sure you don't run out of cash and your debt you know, matches your maturities. You know that from sure. the real estate business. Sure. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, some sort of basic things, but things people forget you know, as they're doing businesses. The third one was think money in, not money out. We said you can make, an air, you can make a pizza so cheap nobody wants to eat it. Uh, you can make an airline so bad the service level nobody wants to fly it. And that's true of, about anything. So that's the, kind of the third point is how do you generate revenue, not just reduce expenses. Sure. Uh, and then the, the fourth one was build a team, clean house if necessary. So you need to take your plan. Uh, don't look at who you have on your team, but uh, draw the team that is needed to fit your plan, the org structure, and then, you know, figure out who you really need uh, to execute it. Some of those people you may have, but some you may not. And you need to treat people with dignity and respect if you need to you know, move them along down the highway of life, but you need to do that to be successful sure. in any business. And then the last piece was let the inmates run the asylum, which probably in today's words would be better expressed as, you know, make sure you, once you have your plan, got your fortress balance sheet, you've thought about how to generate revenue, you've got a really good manage a team that can work with people and are people uh, that can motivate people, then just empower the, empower the employees to, to do it. Sure. And, uh, and uh, that's the kind of, that's the five steps. It, it, you know, simple and easy are not the same thing. That sounds simple, but it's often hard to do. Sure, sure. So, so before you're making an offer uh, on, on acquiring a business, I imagine step one, you've already identified some of the KPIs that are needed, some of these key levers that are, if we change these three to five things or three to 15 things, that we would, we would turn the business around. Yeah, no, in fact, uh, in, in like as I was looking at whether I was going to take a CEO job or not, I would actually pull out a sheet of paper, and if I couldn't write the plan, I mean, it didn't have to be perfect because you need to check it with, you know, your manage, a management team and other people that, that know the business better. But if I couldn't have a good idea of what to do, I didn't take the job, essentially. Yeah. And, uh, and the same is true for buying businesses. If we can't sit down and actually pull out that, what are the, you know, we're going to, in private equity where I am now, we're going to own the business for five to seven years, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the, you know, things we can really accomplish in that time to grow the business? I really do believe God put us on this earth as business people to create jobs. Uh, and grow things, and uh, what, are the, what are those things, those key levers? And there can't be 50 pages, and it can't no. be a tomb. It, it'll never get read, it'll never get done, but what are those really key things that need yeah. to be done? Yeah, and it takes more time and more thought to do a one-page plan than to do a 100-page plan. Uh, it really does. In, in fact, uh, this gets attributed to a lot of people, this statement I'm about to make, Mark Twain, most famously, but it really, if you go back, and I traced it back to Blaise Pascal in the 1400s, who said, I would have written you a, a short letter, but I didn't have enough time, so I wrote a long one. <laughs> and if you really want to ever stump your management team, uh, uh, ask them to sit and, and agree and, and spend the time to write a plan that's on one page that has no more than four bullets under each of those categories or five, that's in like 16 font, not, you know, two font, right? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, where you need a magnifying glass. And uh, you'll have a really great discussion because it's hard to do. It is. But when you do it, it's so powerful because then you know you can roll it out and communicate it to everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, build a fortress balance sheet. I think at Continental you used the cap went to the capital markets and there was some uh, attractive bond pricing at the, at the time, bond rates at the time. I, I think you used debt as a... Well, we, we actually inherited something a little bit different than that. So the, the, I should credit Jamie Diamond, my friend, with uh, the fortress balance sheet idea. He yeah. was really a pro at that during the financial crisis. I went in to see him and he explained to me why he was uh, still standing. You know, he had really 
focused on his balance sheet. So the term comes from really from him. But, uh, but uh, the idea at Continental when we got in there, I discovered maybe I was there three weeks as, uh, as a president. And it, it was Thanksgiving Day, of, uh, and uh, I was going through the cash flow statements, and I discovered we were going to run out of cash uh, in January on payroll. January 17th was payroll. We were going to run out of cash then. And uh, it would have been Continental's third bankruptcy and probably wouldn't have survived that. They had two before we got there. And so I called the board, and, and my partner, Gordon Bethune, is an incredible, uh, was an incredible manager, and said, hey, we got two choices. We can either negotiate with the creditors. Uh, there are like eight or ten that matter, GE, Boeing, Airbus, you know, uh, Rolls-Royce on engines. You know, you can imagine who they were. Or uh, declare bankruptcy for the third time, and nobody's really ever survived that. And so the next Monday after Thanksgiving, I found myself with... Uh, with uh, uh, the creditors in a room, and I said, hey, here's the deal. Here's our go-forward plan, you know, uh, our one-page plan and what we're going to do to kind of uh, try and uh, fix the airline. Uh, and uh, here's our financial situation, right, in terms of our cash flow. And here's what we want from you, which was basically not to make principal and interest payments any time in the near future. And they all started yelling at me. And uh, so I got up to leave the room, and they said, Greg, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go home and watch TV. And they said, what do you mean you're going to go home and watch TV? And, I, and uh, I said, well, do you know what the first step in problem solving is? And they look at me kind of funny. I said, it's who's got the problem. I said, this whole company's worth $175 million. You guys are in the hawk. You're owed $12 billion. You fix it. Uh, and they came and got me, you know, 20 or 30 minutes later, and we worked something out. And they were all paid off about 18 months later. Wow. That's just how fast it turned. So we ultimately were able to access the financial markets after the the turnaround started happening, and you know we became profitable, but uh, but uh, not right away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had we had a few things to do before that. Sure, sure. What's the saying? If you owe a little, the bank owns you. If you owe a lot, you own the bank. That's so right. We we actually owned the bank. <laughs> we were in pretty bad shape. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it was Jamie Dimon that uh, in the last 48 hours they, they released a statement. He made a statement that he believes consumer accounts have two trillion dollars in additional deposits right now. And they've seen a 26% decline in consumer debt on their balance sheet yeah. uh, in the last uh, well, few you months. Well, you don't, I don't know what the, the end implications of all that's going to be, but you don't have to wonder why that is, right? I mean, what did we do? Two trillion of stimulus uh, last spring in 20. Yes. We did another, I want to say, six or 800 billion in December, right? Yes. And we just did another 1.9 trillion. It's hard to even say those numbers. That's like one year's federal discretionary budget each time you say that number. And so we have like piled on the debt and we sent it to the, the consumer. So I think the consumer is super healthy and demand is like roaring. I mean, yes. the economy is roaring. But, you know, I really don't know that we needed that last stimulus, to be honest. I mean, we needed targeted stimulus for people who had been hit. By, by COVID, we're out of work or, you know, people that were need, needing it. But uh, I, I think we should be roughly done, I hope, with this uh, helicoptering of, uh, of, of money. But that's kind of why the consumer balance sheet is where it is. Uh, it's, uh, it's really been given to them uh, by the federal government. That's right. There, and there's this dichotomy because people that I, I think we both probably know, the, the PPP first round came, comes up. And they apply and they get $5 million to $10 million. I know I have a friend that got $10 million here in town, and, uh, which I think is the maximum amount. And, and so it's, it's run entirely by a family office, you know, a separate entity, but the operating business needed the $10 million to stay afloat. 
which they would have invested, obviously, to keep the business afloat. But uh, they, they said, Rick, Rick, we have to take the money because we're going to be inflated out of our, our, our current assets. Yeah. And, and I think they were right. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, at, at, at time will tell. But uh, I do think we need to kind of come back and, uh, and, and, <laughs> and just do it. Just, you know, I think we're getting to the back end of COVID with all the vaccines happening. Yes. And uh, we'll have to, you know, have to sort of mind our financial house just a little bit here to, to go forward. But, that's right. That's right. Uh, management teams. Yeah. Uh, every time, I, I, just assuming that we're coming, we're going to take over a business. We're going to. It's a turnaround. It's a turnaround project. Uh, the management team there is probably responsible why it needs to be turned around. Uh, is that typically a, a management team that needs to be replaced? It kind of depends on the situation. So I think, again, if you take your plan out and you say, okay, now what's the perfect team to execute the plan, not what do I have? Um, in a really, really good company, right? You know, I'm lead director at the Home Depot. It's a really good company. Yes. If you do that, you know, you probably have 5 or 10%. You're always moving people around to, to get them into the best position, to give them experiences and stuff. Uh, that's more kind of normal uh, management. But if you're in a company that's really broken, like we were at Continental or Burger King was in the same kind of state, you know, that's really, and there's, you can think of other examples, IBM under Lou Gerstner or Chrysler under Lee Iacocca way back a win, but, but there's lots of examples. It's pretty hard for that sled dog that took you in the ditch to pull you back out, yeah. right? Yeah. You, yeah. you need some new talent. At Continental, we had 60 officers uh, when we arrived. We, uh, we actually did a, a basic test of, um, you know, I, I, I just state these in funny ways, so don't take offense to them, but I do what I call an IQ dipstick test. Like you remember, you used to check the oil in your car with yeah, the dipstick. Yeah, and yeah. If it comes out two quarts empty, probably not going to work. You know, you need to help that person find a different role. Sure. Um, and then a fly across the Atlantic test, which is, uh, is this a person you want to sit next to? flying eight hours in a plane? Is it somebody you can work with? Is it somebody, you know, that works well with others? Because, yes. you know, working together is such an important part of business. And so we went through the management team in that mm -hmm. sense, and we actually ended up uh, replacing about 50 of the 60 with 20 folks that were really, uh, really could optimize on all those, uh, both those dimensions, both they're really bright at what they did and very talented and, uh, but also uh, were great working with other people and yeah. treated other people with dignity and respect. And did the same thing in many other businesses, uh, you know, Burger King and, and many of the businesses we own at CCMP, we apply the same process to. Yes. Uh, you hope in a really well-run business, you know, you're just adding a person or two or you're just, you know, basically augmenting the skill set. And that happens many times. And one that's really pretty broken uh, or that needs a totally different skill set that becomes more intensive in yeah. terms of that. So it's not always you have to replace everybody, but sometimes you do. Before we started rolling, we had a conversation about Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. And Jordan Peterson is a real big IQ uh, proponent. Mm -hmm. uh, he and uh, Nicholas Asim Tlaib get in a big argument on Twitter every once in a while about whether IQ is, is, uh, is a good thing to measure people by or not. Think, why do we even have to debate this? And because it's so bloody obvious to me that intelligence is a major predictor of life success. I mean, you people, I've measured the IQ of University of Toronto people. You know, people in this room who have an IQ of less than 120 are rare. Well, why? Well, smart people go to university. Now, is that actually a contentious statement? Well, it shouldn't be a contentious statement. It's self-evident. Universities are actually set up 
so that smart people could expand their abilities. That's why they were there. And you're selected on the basis of assessments that are essentially there to assess something like intelligence. And I, th I think it's illegal. I think it's discriminatory in the United States to use IQ pre-selection, but I think you yeah. can use cognitive assessments. Yeah. And so we've, we've started using a tool that's uh, assessing the cognitive performance of people. And so we stopped hiring people that are not in the top 30 30 percentile. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, cognitive performance because they learn faster, they're smarter, they pro they're better problem solvers, and you don't spend as much time training them. Yeah. Uh, no, it's interesting. I'm sure you can apply a lot of theory and uh, to that. We were we were much more organic in our approach. You know, we just you know said we actually looked at the people who were talented in the organization and said, who do you know? Yeah. Right. Who do you know that's uh, really good? You know, if we needed say a pricing person at Continental or we needed somebody in ops at Burger King, you know, we we did the Kind of, you know, who do you know that you'd want to work with that you think is excellent? And uh, we often ended up getting folks that were number two or three in the positional lineup mm -hmm. uh, at a competitor, or uh, but you know, were probably smarter than their boss. And uh, <laughs> and it's not a bad. I still yeah. do that a lot. It's not a bad way to not a bad way to hire people. Yeah, I get my cognitive assessments back from from my, my management team, yeah. and I realize I'm I'm the stupid one here. No, no, exactly. Yeah. I'd, be scared, to, to be. I'd be scared, honestly, Rick, to take one of those tests. I might not pass. You know, I don't just know. don't share with anybody. Yeah, else. exactly. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. So um, you've got these different elements when you're looking at, at placing a, a team member in a, in a leadership position. You've got obviously cognitive uh, capacity, the dipstick text. You've got resume, you've got integrity. Uh, you've got some other, other variables there, uh, uh, relevant uh, uh, workhorse, education, things like that. What are, some, what are maybe the two or three things that, that you put most emphasis on that, that, that they've got to be these two or three things before you even, they even get out, get out of the gate? Well, I think, I think just the demonstrated ability to work with other people successfully, somebody you'd really want to you know, be in the trenches with. So that, that's just so fundamentally important because life's way too short to, you know, quite honestly, work with jerks. So, sure. so, uh, uh, and then I also kind of put a lot of emphasis and thought into diversity, mm -hmm. um, diver ethnic diversity, uh, gender diversity, but just diversity of thought and idea and experience. So... You're looking to develop a pretty well-rounded team. And then obviously just a capability, right? I mean, just, you know, what have they done? Have they done it before? Do they have the ability to, to, to do it? So I'd say probably those three yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of constantly thinking about. So, so, uh, so in your book, there's an underlying tone, um, a, a bias towards action. Yeah. Uh, there is a, a general tone of focusing on money in versus money out, which is a more of an aggressive stance for business. A lot of business guys are operators. They want to cut the OPEX, but they don't want to focus on marketing and sales. But you're, you're, I mean, you're a big proponent for sales, marketing. It seems like you've got this kind of aura of, of being aggressive and being, being out there um, in, in advancement and in, in action. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I, I like to say I'd rather somebody make 20 decisions a day and get two of them wrong and fix those than you know, take two months to make a decision. So I, there's a clear bias of action. If you're turning something around that's really broken, you don't have any choice. I mean, you've got to go fast, right? Yeah. But, but the companies that are satisfactorily underperforming, that are doing fine but not you know, hitting their full potential, uh, those are the ones where you kind of have to push a little bit more on the, uh, you know, on the organic growth. I'll tell you, I admire uh, Craig Minear, who's the CEO of Home Depot and a dear friend of mine, uh, uh, he's just constantly pushing, as was Frank Blake before him, what can we do better? How can we think about this better? How do we go from just bricks and mortar to true interconnected retail? Yes. Uh, and uh, you know, the stock price, like every day now, hits a all-time high. So you can kind of see the results of that. It's yeah. uh, fun to watch. 
Um, we love buying businesses that actually are what I call fantastic industrial businesses, but that you can actually take and transform from a, a market perspective, like digitally transform them, mm -hmm. uh, using new technology. And a couple uh, good examples of that, Generac, the home standby generator company, has a fantastic CEO. Uh, Aaron Yodfeld, we owned that company for a long time, and uh, it was an incredible manufacturing engineering company, but almost had a little bit of the philosophy way back when, this hasn't been true for years now, of, uh, you know, this would be a great business if it wasn't for the customer, right? They just so much <laughs> love the technology and the manufacturing. We did a lot of things to kind of look forward, and Aaron put uh, a little chip in the generator that when, before it, uh, you, it could get turned on, essentially, by an electrician that was installing it, they'd have to register the address. So all of a sudden, you knew where all the generators were being installed, and you knew where to market, right? Simple wow. things like that. We actually learned just in traveling around with the installers uh, that the people that install generators are uh, electricians, right, that, that work with high-voltage electricity. And there's almost a direct correlation between people that work with high-voltage electricity and introverts. Mm -hmm. You know, they tend not to be, you know, uh, sales-type people. So we developed an iPad app that when you went into a customer home, you could say, what do you want to come on? Do you want your refrigerator to come on or you want your HVAC, half your house, your whole house when the power goes out? And uh, that iPad app would lead you right to a sale and actually price it for you and everything. So uh, it had videos in it. So with it, for an introvert, it's very hard to kind of sell. They had a tool that actually was very helpful to them. So you're, you're, you're trying to think of things like that. We actually own a pool equipment company now called Hayward, which is the leading supplier of pool yeah, equipment. If yeah. you're down here in Texas, you're, you're probably short pool equipment after that ice storm because <laughs> half the pumps and the heaters and stuff blew up. But um, we, we've done a lot of things to transform the company with variable speed pumps, high efficiency heaters, UV and ozone treatment to take out a lot of the chemicals. It has fast payback. But probably the coolest thing is these controls now, if I could pull out my cell phone and show you this, we had them rewrite an app for it. Uh, the app was terrible. I mean, you could hardly use it to sort of control your pool off your iPhone. Mm -hmm. And we brought it, you know, this firm of 26-year-olds in to sort of redo it. It's now the number one rated app on the App Store. Wow. And you can control your whole pool on the app, and there's 93% attachment of product, pool product, to the app. So if you have the app, you're putting in Hayward Pool Equipment. And so it's been a fantastic... Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how well the company's doing, but it's been a great company, but it was satisfactorily underperforming in terms of go-to-market. Sure. So new, new management, new CEO, new CFO, new head of North America, new management team, but also some tools that really helped That's to right. digitally transform the business. So those are a couple yeah. of examples yeah. of how that works. So, so I want to I want to use digital transformation as a tool to get into this idea of speed. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I can just tell you in our in our internal business, we've got Zach that's that's watching off camera, who's in our, on our one of our uh, top leasing guys. Um, we looked at about two years ago the, the transaction speed, making an investment and tying the CRM with the with the e-signing platform on our leasing side. Mm. Of course, you own commercial real estate. The, the top line is based off your, your revenue from leases. So the leases, if you speed up the lease process, yeah. you, you speed up your, defl your deal flow and your, and your revenue accruement. Well, we decided that we're gonna invest a significant amount of money and tying our CRM with our e-signing platform just to take, take a few minutes off the, the, yeah, the lease preparation sure. thing. Yeah, so what we, we measured a couple of months ago was that uh, when you send out one of these 20 or 30 page leases to these tenants, um, that uh, we were able to cut the, the average time to sign. So if they were gonna sign a lease, they were signing it, I think it was in three and a half minutes on average. So think about that. 
30 pages, you're not reading 30 no. pages in three minutes. They're no. just signing it. Um, we've had some crazy things uh, happen via that e-signing platform. People just sign it on their phone just because you have the technology there. You make it easy. It's convenient. It's the natural thing to do. Uh, we've had multi-million dollars, uh, uh, hundreds of page contracts signed in, in less than 10 minutes before using the same sort of thing. And so little incremental improvements there really, really accrue to the, to the top oh, line and the bottom you, line. Huge, huge. And, and, you know, in leases, that's perfect, right? It, uh, you know, I, you know, I sit on a lot of boards. So I have a lot of board resolutions I need to sign. And uh, if they send them to you in a PDF now, come into your, your iPhone, you can, of course, actually just hit on the PDF, have your signature you've already left in there, hit your signature, move it up to your signature line, pop it in there and send it right back. Wow. Right where it used to be, you know, print this thing out, sign it, find a fax machine, you know, or, you know, or, or FedEx it back. I mean, you can now do it in a, you know, fraction of that time. And it's perfect for documents like that, right? So that's leases right. are a perfect example. That's right. And it, it, so, so we've got this bias towards action, which also has an implication towards speed. Yeah. Deal speed, transaction speed. Uh, you mentioned the that you'd rather someone make 20 decisions and get a couple of them wrong than not make any decisions at all uh, because you, you really alluded to this feedback loop. And the quicker we can turn around this feedback loop, the, the more the, progress we make over time. No, absolutely. And, and uh, time is precious. And particularly if you're at a company and you're either growing it or turning it around, uh, having people be able to fail fast yes. uh, with some guardrails, right? You, you don't want people you know, betting the company on anything uh, to do that. But, but fail fast, get the feedback, get better. Uh, improve their decision making. It, uh, it it it's critical to to sort of optimizing a business. That's right. I think John Maxwell wrote the book. Uh, sometimes you win. Sometimes you learn. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean that's that's really really true. You should always always be making mistakes, right? Yeah. 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 That's right. And I think uh, there's there's a lot of research that's been that's been done on the the idea of trying to communicate to the, the management teams and the, and the multiple levels of an organization um, on the concept of, of, of the, the cost to actually delay decisions, the mm -hmm. cost of not making uh, the improvements sooner rather than later. And, and the, the cost to wait is, is, is typically far greater oh, than the cost so, yeah, of Yeah, no, there's a lot of studies on that for sure, you know, in terms of, the, in terms of those loops. One, one thing you can do for your whole organization, uh, for those of you who are running businesses, uh, to kind of speed this up and, and to help people think about it is if you have that one-page plan, so everybody's focused on going east today, yeah. you know, and east is like, in my mind, 070 to 110 on the compass, you know, 090 you know, is perfect east. Okay. Um, you know, then you're fine. You can let people have some degrees of freedom. If they're going 270, you, you, know, you need to turn them around. Yeah. But once you have that, one of the tools from very early on we used, uh, certainly at, uh, at the airline, but uh, I've used kind of my whole career, uh, it started out with voicemail, essentially, where you'd set up a 1-800 number, and every Friday afternoon, you'd leave a voicemail message with, here's kind of what our plan is again, here's what we did last week, here's what we're going to do this week, here's what I want you to know. And especially for organizations, leasing would be a great example, airlines with people spread out were a great example, or Burger King, where the franchisees were all over the place, you mm -hmm. know, uh, all over the country, all over yeah. the world. Um, people would dial into that and they get an update once a week in terms of, you know, here's where we are, here's the progress, here's kind of what we're focused on. And it really helped people, keep people informed as to where we were on the plan, right? And that personal right. communication, uh, at the time, you know, I'd dial into voicemail, now you could leave them a video, right? I mean, there's a lot of newer technology now you can use to do it, but a being able to personally hear your voice 
and you being able to personally take their feedback and actually act on it and reflect on it and push it back out really does speed that improvement time and brings everybody along at the same time. Yes, yes, yes. So I can tell you, so one of the one of the uh, interesting things is the, the, the foundation uh, that I'm chairman of right now, we hired, I think a friend, a friend of yours, Waters Davis. Oh, yeah, Waters I, is great. Waters think, was my best friend at Harvard Business School. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I thought I'd heard that. Yeah, I thought yeah. I heard that. So we brought him in right after his tenure uh, being president of Reliant Energy. I think mm. he had 10,000 employees, whatever it was yeah. there. And it was nice bringing him in because as, as a board member, we didn't have to worry about anything. You just, yeah. you just, you just turn, turn over the keys and you just let them go. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and so one of the things that, uh, that he stresses is it's really important in a larger organization that, that you, you, as, the, as the chief executive, that you notice that there's a lot more places where you get to the word no before you get to the word go. Yeah. That there's, there's not enough permission. There's, not, there's, not, there's a lot of controls. There's a lot of negativity, uh, a risk aversion in larger yeah. organizations. But there's not a lot of places where they say, go, go, make, a, go make a run at it. Go be aggressive on this. And, and so that was one of the things that, that I learned from Waters. And so uh, as, we've, as we've looked at and, and had, um, uh, uh, I guess, structures that we try to set up over time, uh, we try to implement these, and I think this is a, maybe a, a Harvard uh, Business School uh, item, this, this, this uh, responsibility matrix, this racy matrix yeah. where you set up the responsibilities, accountabilities, and, and so forth in these organizations. Did you, use a, did you use a formalized structure, or do you use formalized structures for, to talk about responsibilities and accountabilities, or do you... No, we, we really, we probably didn't, you know, we probably weren't as formalized as we okay. needed to be. We, we, we would, uh, you know, we, we just uh, do a lot of communication, kind of, of what we wanted to have. And then uh, we, we set up, uh, both at Connell and Burger King, we set up 1-800 numbers where if employees, any employee saw anything wrong on the system or anything they thought needed to be addressed, they could actually call in. And uh, we would get back to them within 24 hours with, uh, we're going to fix it, or, you know, we're not, and here's why, or, you know, we need to study it a little longer, and here's when we'll get back to you. Yes. So, and then every morning, particularly at the airline, we would have a meeting with representatives, uh, leaders from the flight attendants, the pilots, the mechanics, the gate agents, uh, 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 the entire ops team, and we would uh, we'd go through and we'd address those. And so, um, you know, do that two or three years, and pretty soon you're in pretty good shape. So we, in a sense, it's had that feedback operation. Sure. Uh, and then the Continental, when we got there, Burger King was the same. We had so many rules. Do this, do that. You know, every time something went wrong, somebody write another rule. And pretty soon the rule book gets to be this thick. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we basically got a trash can, some diesel, and, and uh, lit it on fire. And basically just sat down and, and with folks, uh, developed two or three pages of general guidelines, right? And then you can, your, your leasing example was a good one, because you can put some, uh, some uh, technology inside of decisions that are being made. So I'll give you one that everybody would think about at the airport. A gate agent has a problem. A flight's been delayed. Somebody's bags were lost. Something happened. They should have a set of tools where they can actually delight the customer, right? And uh, that might be an upgrade. It might be, you know, we'll deliver your bags to your home by this time. Whatever that is, right? They ought to be able to make that decision on the spot. Well, if you have technology in there and you see that the same gate agent upgraded 20 people with the same last name and it happened to be the, their same last name, <laughs> you know they upgraded their whole family, yeah. right? So then yeah. you can go back and you can say, hey, we're not doing that. We're not, you know, yeah. we're not here to upgrade your whole family. But uh, what we're here to do is uh, delight the customer. So. You don't need to set so many rules in place. You can actually use technology 
to kind of help you uh, allow people the freedom to make a decision. And then if you see patterns or, you know, you know somebody makes a mistake, you can go back and address it. But you, you give them the freedom to make it, first sure, of all. Sure, sure. We used to say, uh, you know, at, uh, at the airline, for sure, that it's a captain's airline. So if, the, if folks are there and you want to, you know, your decision to take off, right? You know, you, you make the decision. And the system control people, there's kind of a Star Wars-like place that controls that in, the entire network at airlines, uh, you know, basically whoever's running that, you know, that, that shift, that's their shift, right? They make the decisions. So are they going to make all right decisions in terms of what flight to cancel, what flight not, you know, when to slow down things in New York because there's weather coming or probably not perfect, right? Yeah. But, you know, you can't make all those decisions at the top. You have to let people make those decisions. That's right. right. And I, I, think, I think I saw a lot of pictures of you actually in Home Depot stores yeah, over the years. I mean, you spend a lot of time with frontline workers. We do, yeah. No, we spend a lot of time with our associates. Uh, we, we really love our orange-blooded associates. And uh, Bernie Marcus and Kenny Langone and Arthur Blank were the founders of Home Depot. And they developed uh, uh, two pieces of strategy, which were brilliant, right? Two sheets of paper. One was an inverted pyramid. And it starts with customers at the top. You know, is it, it's inverted. So, And then it has the associates, right? Mm -hmm. The orange-blooded associates. And then the store management. And then the store support center, right? You yes. know, which is our headquarters. And then the CEO, right? The board doesn't even rate on this uh, thing. But that's the... Um, that's how the companies run, right? So it really is uh, to empower the associates to make the right decision. And there are famous stories of this happening, of associates in the early in the day uh, taking tires that people returned at Home Depot. Home Depot doesn't even sell tires, right? And giving them a credit. So, yeah. so that, that's very rewarded. And, and then we have a value wheel uh, with the culture of the company on this value wheel. And that's the other thing. And quite frankly, we've added a third one, which is a stool that uh, Frank Blake and Craig Manier came up with, uh, which is an interconnected retail. So kind of, and the, you could run the whole company off those three sheets of paper. Wow. Right. You know, wow. I mean, it's all values, right? Yeah. It's all, it's all hanging into your values and it's a complicated big business. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, Meyer, the management team there is doing a great job, but it really comes back to those core values. That's right. That's right. I think of someone like a Horst Schultze who started kind of the, the modern-day Ritz-Carlton. Yeah, exactly. Same. Yeah, same. I mean, powering the front Sam Walton at Walmart. Exactly. Right, same thing. Exactly. Yeah. And Horst Schultze, I mean, I think even the housekeepers in those, in those Ritz-Carlton's have the authority to make anything right. They own all the problems they hear, whether it's their problem or not. Yeah. And I think he gives them a $2,000 per person budget to handle each complaint if they need, if they need to. Yeah. And so it's and brilliant. So it, it is. It is. And they don't No one. Maybe someone abuses it somewhere along the line. But but for the most part, it's really, really worked. And uh, we've, we actually have brought in about every three years. We'll, we'll do a year of concentration on the Ritz-Carlton customer service uh, metrics about how to ramp up, how to onboard a new project, yeah. that sort of thing. A lot of similarities. And I, th I think they do things right. Uh, so let's get back to the to the balance sheet item um, obviously right now we're at a time of low interest rates they're artificially low I think I think the Treasury and the Fed are are, are clearly working together towards uh, towards impacting that for obvious reasons um, what what is the decision whether or not to take on debt for a business in order to reinforce their balance sheet especially in, especially in a time like this whenever we have low low interest rates and a little bit of uncertainty in the future. Yeah, no, I, I think it really does depend business to business. And I'll talk about business and I'll talk about life because I think that those are two are pretty different. Yes. You know, the, the business side, so um, you got to decide what's important to you and, and what you really 
you know, what you want to do. You don't want to get out of balance. So you, you want to make sure your maturities are long enough out there, you have plenty of cash, you know, and all that. And certainly some businesses can handle a decent amount of debt. But I, I remember this time last year, uh, Craig Manier, who's the CEO of Home Depot, and, uh, and, uh, and the CFO and I were talking, and uh, Richard McPhail's the CFO, and um, we decided the most important thing to the company, and there wasn't even a question, back to that inverted pyramid was, we wanted to make sure if we were shut down for 60 days by the U.S. government, we could pay our employees, right, our associates. Yes. And uh, it was the single most important thing. So we said, well, how much would it take to pay our associates for 60 days if we're totally shut down? You know, we'll have a little bit coming in off of dot .com and, you know, all that. So we did the math, and, and it, the math was $11 billion. It would take $11 billion. We didn't end up getting shut down, but, yeah. but uh, we were essential. But it, it $11 billion. So we had $3 billion on the balance sheet. We had a $5 billion commercial paper program, uh, so that's an eight. Uh, we went to J.P. Morgan. We got a line of credit to back up that commercial paper program, so we got a $5 billion line of credit. And it, but the markets were closed. The bond markets were completely closed in March of last sure. year. And we needed $3 billion more, right? So um, uh, in looking at Craig and Richard, I said, you know, if Home Depot can't open the bond market, there's nobody that can open the bond market. Right. So let's go try. And they went out, and credit to them, uh, within two hours for that $3 billion, we had, um, we had like $29 billion worth of demand. So uh, at like under 3%, right? Uh, everybody wanted Home Depot paper. So uh, we actually borrowed five. Uh, so we got to 13 uh, to give ourselves a little bit of a cushion. We never really needed to use that. So we were able to use it to do an acquisition we wanted to do later. And, and we had a little bit of negative carry on the cash on the balance sheet for a little bit. But the point really was we wanted to protect. The whole reason we did that was to live to the culture, to protect the associates uh, from something really bad happening to them and their family. And there's 500,000 of them roughly. So sure. it's a lot. So uh, and a big piece of the economy. But if you think like that, and that's why you're pulling your debt down, and it's to keep with your values and to manage your business, that's an extreme example. Depot's a very successful company. But, but, um, but that, that's a pretty good use of debt. So I think you can use it you know, where it makes sense, and we do in our business all the time. I think personally, once you write your one-page go-forward plan, so you take out your sheet of paper and you write faith, family, friends, fitness, finance, and mm -hmm. you figure out what that is, you want your personal balance sheet to be set up so that nothing stops you from executing that plan that God has put in front of you in your life, right? So you always want to ask the question, is this decision or is this incremental amount of debt going to cause me to be further or closer to my maker, to be closer to or further away from my family, to allow me to invest and build in my friendships, you know, to allow me to maintain my health, to exercise, to take care of myself, and, uh, and you really want your personal balance sheet to match, you know, alongside of your plan to make sure that uh, you actually own your life, the bank doesn't own your life, right? That's right, that's right. And, uh, and so that's a different answer. I've got some general rules of thumb for people in yeah. terms of how much to spend on housing and, you know, how much kind of debt to take on, but I think in your personal life, the, the less debt you can actually manage to, uh, the better off you are. Uh, yeah. you are right because it, it gives you freedom you know you get sure. in fact on the uh you know where uh, build a fortress balance sheet is kind of the business step i use for personal life i use this step for finance it's called choose freedom 
right? Because you want to you want to be able to to uh, do you know to fulfill God's calling in your life without a bank having call on a call on you. That's right. That's right. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think the the predominant command uh, in in the Christian faith is mm-hmm. fear not. Yeah. I mean that that's the most common command that our Lord gave us. A second second yeah. maybe maybe to money, uh, mm-hmm. depending on how you read certain um, certain verses. Mm-hmm. And so if we if we have a fear. And the fear is intrinsically built into this debtor-borrower type, type of relationship with yeah. the lender. Um, it, it really hinders us. It does hinder us. And it also hinders another thing that's important. So in, in business, you think money in, not money out. That's right. In life, it's exactly the opposite. You think money out, not money in. Because <clears throat> generosity is the only cure for materialism. And you can look at the 13 major worldviews, you know, Christianity, atheism, uh, Enlightenment movement with Emmanuel Kant, Judaism the Muslim faith, the only thing they all agree on is that we need to give alms to the poor, that we need to help those out that are less fortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, if you owe a bunch of money to the bank and your, and your own cash, personal cash flow situation isn't balancing because you're outspending your, your income, right? You're living above your means. Uh, your chance of really being truly generous and getting the blessing from being truly generous you know, goes way down, right? Yeah. So that's a, just another reason why you want to keep your personal balance sheet in, uh, in, in pretty good yeah. shape. And you, you, you cite the great C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity, the only safe bet is to give away more than you can afford. Yeah. I, no. think, I think he stole that from, from Wesley as well. Yeah, you know, everybody, uh, you know, it's funny because I was given this uh, talk, uh, this uh, commencement address at my son's school when he graduated, which is Asbury University, my youngest son, and uh, which is a, a Methodist uh, Theologic, mm-hmm. theological school, but you know he went to the undergrad there, and uh, so I was going to be talking not only to the undergrads but to all these, uh, you know, theologians. Yeah. And uh, so I, I wrote this ad, this uh, this talk up on faith at work, and I uh, I sent it to Tim Keller, and he said I think he stole this Greg from my book Every Good Endeavor, <laughs> which I honestly didn't, but I probably stole some of the concepts. I probably got some of the concepts from there. But I told I told him back. I said. Tim, I think you stole everything you got from C.S. Lewis, who, uh, who, took, it from, who took it from King Solomon, uh, who said yes. there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so uh, the reality is, uh, you know, I think some of these time-honored, uh, you know, principles and, uh, you know, are really, uh, yeah. I think we all, we all live on the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah, you that's know? right. That's right. I'm, I'm going to put the disclaimer under this. Is if we say anything that sounds smart, we stole it from somewhere. We just can't remember who yeah, we stole it from. Yeah, I can't remember where. I, t- I tell everybody, I'll give you attribution the first time, and after that, I'm going to take it. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so you, 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 you introduced the topic of books. What, what sort of books do you enjoy reading? Because uh, you're, you're an avid reader. Yeah, I read a fair amount. Um, uh, you know, I, I like... I like all kinds of books. I used to read probably until I was like 45. I'd read a lot of the, I'd like, you know, I'd read a lot of the John Grisham, uh, Greg Isles kind of things to relax. I don't really do that anymore. So part of that epiphany of, I probably ought to watch what I read because you can only read so much. That's right. And I really do personally enjoy reading theology. So I read a lot of, uh, I read a lot of theology uh, uh, and, and books and books like that. I love history. I love historical biographies yeah, a, yeah. as well. So uh, yeah, so I, I, like, I like reading those. So I, I do, I've been doing 50 books a year for, I think it's my eighth year doing oh, that's that. That's great. Yeah. And same sort of thing. I, try, I, I tend to read more theology. If I'm looking at business books or theology, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go ahead and. Yeah, read the to, theology. Yeah, read theology. It, it takes yeah. you to a different place. And, and, you know, we quite honestly, we get a lot of business interactions, so. Yeah, uh, you know it's probably a probably a more important place to be. That's right, right. And I, I'll, I'll still know the line from Lewis. He says that 
you can never understand the lower median without understanding the higher first. And yeah. you, having the perspective is, is right. And so understanding the higher, the theological yeah, that, endeavors help us help us better understand business and, per, and dealing with people. No, it's important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, what, what sorts of authors and, and theology books do you, do you like? Well, you know, I love reading Tozier. Uh, yeah. J.I. Packer, you know, is another, you know, excellent to read. I, I, I think I've probably read almost everything uh, Tim Keller has written. Uh, he's a good friend. Uh, uh, it's really the C.S. Lewis of our time, just yes. an amazing human being. Uh, uh, so on the theology side, I, you know, I like those. I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, David Brooks wrote a book called The Road to Character, you know, in New York Times columnist and it, it was I thought David did a great job with that book I enjoyed that that yeah. book so he, he mentions the virtues in there the, t the two different yeah, types yeah, of virtues yeah he he uh, he talks about my favorite kind of quote I use a lot from that book is uh, you know there are resume virtues and eulogy virtues you know resume yeah. virtues are how somebody introduces you uh, when you're giving a speech or you know doing a podcast or whatever it might be uh, you know, sort of the litany of stuff you've done in your life. And, uh, you know, in the very end, those are really not so important, right? You know, I mean, uh, it makes you feel good when you hear them, but, you know, not so important. But uh, the eulogy virtues are what really, you know, matter. Is it, what do you want people to say at your funeral? Yes. Right? Where do you want to have invested, you know, uh, throughout your life? And that's the point of writing a one-page personal plan. It's really to get you know, in poker, there are red chips, white chips, and blue chips. The white chips are a buck, the red chips are 10, and the blue chips are 25. And, you know, I sort of think of it like that. You really want to get those blue chip things that if you don't focus on them, time is just going to pass. Yes. You know, it might be spending a weekend with each of your children every year. It might be spending, making sure you spend time with your parents, you know, doing something uh, meaningful. It might be making sure you spend plenty of time mentoring other people or after you read a good book, sending it out to those that you think might get something really meaningful out of it. You know, it's, it's those kinds of uh, things. Uh, you know, my wife and I, and uh, with Britt and Julia Harris, who are dear friends, have been uh, doing mar a marriage summit for the last 13 years wow. for younger you know, couples. Things like that, that you're really trying to build longer-term value that will extend past, you know, your time on, sure, on earth sure. and to pass it on. Like folks have passed it to us. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've been, I was fortunate really to have some amazing mentors in my life, whether my uncle Lyle or I got to spend a lot of time with uh, 41, George H.W. Bush and, uh, and with Senator Lloyd Benson uh, wow. here, you know, in I Houston. And, and uh, yeah, he was on the Continental Airlines board. And Really? Yeah, he, he actually, when he left government, uh, he actually uh, came on the Continental Airlines board and he called me and he said, Greg, I'd like to meet with you once every three weeks. And he, I, he said, I want to do a couple international trips with you. So I said, the guy, you know, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> uh, so so uh, we would meet and, uh, and then we went to Buenos Aires together. Uh, you know, I don't know, two or three months into this, and uh, uh, we went to see Menem, the president there, and uh, we got there, and, uh, and I was, you know, Continental was driving flights into these places, so, so it made some sense. And um, uh, we had this honor guard, you know, with the soldiers with the swords and the band yeah, and all yeah. this, and, we were, and so we were in the car, and he said, Greg, this meeting is for you uh, with the president to talk about air service, so why don't you, you know, go first? I said, with all due respect, Senator, none of these, <laughs> none of these guys would be here with the fancy swords and the band if it wasn't for you. So wow. uh, you go first. He said, now let's walk in together. So we did. But I asked him like six months into this, I said, you know, Senator, it's been an incredible honor to spend this time with you. And uh, I really appreciated it. But I said, I have to ask you a question. He said, what's that, Greg? I said, well, why did you agree or think, you know, reach out to me to kind of help mentor me? 
And uh, I don't know how many of you remember Senator Benson, right? Uh, but he had the most famous uh, debate line in the history of oh, political epic. debates. Epic, epic line. against Quayle, yes, yes. Against Dan, he was debating Dan Quayle, who was a young senator, was President Bush 41's running mate. He was running with Mike Dukakis. That's right. And uh, they were having this debate, and, and, and Dan Quayle uh, was comparing himself to JFK because of age and, and temperament. And so, huge, uh, huge mistake. Huge, huge mistake. Huge mistake. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Senator Benson basically ended the debate by looking at him and saying, uh, Senator, uh, he said, I knew uh, JFK. He said, Senator, uh, JFK was a friend of mine. And he said, Senator, you're no JFK. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Senator Benson. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. And that was basically game, set, match, right? So with that same tone and kind of smirk, he actually looked at me and said, uh, Greg, the reason I decided to mentor you is because you need it. Wow. Ah, uh, which was, uh, you know, his classic Senator Benson. Wow. But, but, uh, but he was just an amazing, amazing yeah, man. He so, was. He was. So, uh, but I was fortunate to have those kinds of guys as mentors. Yes. So if you think about mentoring... Uh, and, and helping other people. I think we all need a Paul and a Timothy, someone who mentors right. us and someone who we mentor. Right. And, um, and uh, so we're trying to pass it. We all need to pass it along. Yeah. Right. Jim, Jim Collins' new book, uh, I think it's BE 2.0, talk, talks about it as hulak. I think some of the people would refer to it. These people, these, these chance random encounters that you have where you meet these people, Kyle mm -hmm. Van was one of the people yeah. for me. Yeah, Kyle's perfect example. Um, yeah. uh, we've got, uh, you know, just two or three people in everyone's lives that maybe they really made a, a huge change in the trajectory. Um, so Lloyd Benson III, who's, yeah. who's still living, uh, is, a, oh, is sure. a real close friend. We, we, we have lunch oh, every once in a while, yeah. uh, pre-COVID. Pre so so we're, sitting, we're sitting having lunch uh, probably three or four years ago, uh, just he and I, and uh, in walks Neil Bush. Hmm. Now, for the pe people who aren't familiar with it, so it was, it was George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle yeah. versus Dukakis and, and Senator and Benson, Benson, Lloyd Benson, his, his yeah. dad, his yeah, dad. His dad. So, so, they, so Lloyd, so uh, uh, Lloyd the Third stands up. I stand up, and we we have this this interchange with uh, with Neil Bush. So these are the sons of uh, probably two of the big icons of, of both the, the liberal and the and the conservative movements yeah. in the 1980s. And and I just sit there, and Greg. I'm just in awe of this conversation. I'm thinking this is this is kind of a quasi historic moment right yeah. here. And these two guys compare notes, and uh, and so and so we we sit back down, and I I just never realized how involved. Uh, the partnership between Lloyd III and Lloyd Jr., which is the senator, yeah. really was, and how close that father-son bond were. Yeah, no, he was close to his sons for sure. I respect his sons immensely. The, uh, the interesting thing about, you kind of say conservative and liberal, the interesting thing about those two guys and their generation is they were all the greatest generation, right? They, they came were. out of World War II. And they knew what it was like to fight for uh, the U.S. And, and actually, the country was way more important than the uh, political position. And uh, Senator Benson was a very conservative, what they used to call in the day, blue dog, blue dog. Democrat, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? right. And uh, Senator and President Bush was a very compassionate 
what I'd call um, Republican, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, they actually politically, even though they, they uh, competed against each other, not in that, only in that race, but in another race uh, early in their career, uh, they were actually very philosophically close and they were quite good friends. Really? So, really? yeah, it was, uh, it was a different day, as they say. And, uh, you know, as I think about politics, I long for that. You know, I got, you know, I had the opportunity to know them both pretty close closely, and uh, I kind of long for their, uh, their true sense of what America is and, uh, and the teamwork that's needed uh, in the country. So. That's right, that's right. And, you, and I, I don't want to get into a, um, a tangent with, uh, with politics, but yeah. it, seems like, it seems like both sides, both parties are just going to the extremes, yeah, and, and there's, no, sure. there's no common ground back then. Obviously, the blue dog Democrat would be sort of the moderate Republican these days. It would be, yeah, absolutely, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, well, I think we've We've actually nailed down where the extremes are. Now we need to sort of see if we can figure out something in between. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, so in the, in the context of, of trying to put together this executive team, uh, that they're finding the right people, uh, Jim Collins line again, uh, which, is, which is epic, which is we've got to get the right people on the bus and we've got to give them the right seats there. Yeah. Um, it seems like that, that may be most of your job if, if, you're, if you're coming in from a private equity standpoint, just getting the right people there and, 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 and yeah, let, yeah, let them run yeah, the asylum. Yeah, no, no, no question. In, in private equity, what you're trying to do is uh, take the company and, and write that plan with management, right? Yeah. Preferably as you're kind of looking at the buying the business, so you write it together. And then, um, and then you just want to make sure you have the right folks to, to execute it. And uh, if those right folks are in place, fantastic. Life is so much better. Yes. But if not, um, you know, you need to you need to sort of make that happen, right? And get and get that team in place. And uh, and then because you're 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 owning, you know, 10, 12 businesses at a time or something, you you really want to get yourself in a situation where, uh, you know, they do you know run the com I mean, they are running the company. You're not running the company. So. That's right. That's right. Um, so it seems like the job of the CEO, um, I guess, I guess the private equity CEO is really to monitor the CEOs, to have a team on, on staff that can support them, uh, probably focus more on opportunities rather than problem solving. Yeah. Well, there's a little bit of both. Okay. I mean, there's always in every business some problem solving as well. But uh, what we do in our firm, but maybe a little different. So half of our partners, our, our owners like myself, are... Um, our traditional operators, right? We've actually run businesses. We've been CEOs for private equity, you know, done that, sit on boards like Home Depot and others. And half of us are traditional private equity guys, have been in their private equity their entire career. So on every deal we do, we have one of each at least. So uh, we have that balance. And I think that's worked out really well because if you sat in the seat of the CEO and you know what their problems are and what their issues are, you can actually be, uh, you can provide a different kind of counsel to them than what they would get just from a financial, you know, a financial person. And, and uh, likewise, the partners that have been financial people in their careers, they have a lot to add in, uh, in you know, deal structuring and capital markets and, and other areas. But, but uh, that model has worked pretty well yeah. for us, right? So, so in 2006, J.P. Morgan Chase decided they want to get out of the private equity business, if memory serves, and so they spun out... Uh, CCMP Capital, I, I guess the, the, the future yeah. CCMP Capital, and you joined a couple of years later? Yeah, yeah. So the way, the way that worked, I talked to Jamie at the time. He had actually, they had just done the merger of Bank One and J.P. Morgan. Okay. And I think they half did that merger just to get Jamie, right, which has been uh, precedent. He's probably one of yes. the better CEOs in the world today oh, and yeah. has been for a long time. 
Um, uh, and uh, he ended up with two private equity firms. So he ended up with JP Morgan Partners and One Equity Partners. One Equity was run by a fantastic guy by the name of Dick Cash, and it was a bit, oh, quite a, a lot smaller than JP Morgan Partners. JP Morgan was kind of the merchant banking operation of the bank. And so Jamie decided to spin out JP Morgan Partners independently, and that became CCMP, so it's Chase Chemical Manufacturers or Morgan Partners. And that happened in 2006. And uh, I had been talking to Jamie and to the, the team, the CCMP team, time, you know, for a while, kind of through that process, and officially joined them in 2008. Okay. Uh, to change the business model a little bit to this two heads are better than one model, right? With, That's right. Uh, an operator, and so I've been executive chairman there for uh, since that time. So, were you already in private equity in that in that before you got into that role? No, I was actually still running companies. So I had okay. run, you know, I was still running. Uh, I think at the time they spun out, I was still running Burger King. So, so uh, I'd just been talking to them for a while. I had my own uh, uh, family office, which I called, you know, it's been around a long time, called Turnworks. So I was doing some stuff in there, but but. Uh, but no, that was my kind of first foray to go into the dark side and leaving kind of running <laughs> companies and going to private equity. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the private equity business, one of the big strategies, obviously, if you've got strategies around different uh, verticals, obviously around different uh, uh, industries, different plays, turnaround, turnaround deals, uh, minority, majority stakes. Uh, you guys obviously in the turnaround business, you have to focus on majority stakes. You got to get control of the stakes to be able to turn yeah, some of these Yeah, in fact, around. we're we're almost entirely, with very few exceptions, controlling yeah. stake oriented. Uh, you know, in our business, and we actually have over time really focused the business. I found the fastest way to make money is stop doing things that lose it, right? And that you know comes back to the great continental example of. Uh, you know, I looked at the schedule, and when I got there, and 18% of the flying was cash flow negative. It wasn't covering the cost of the food, the fuel, the crew, the aircraft rent. And I said, well, why do we go Greensboro to Greenville eight times a day when both customers are on the first flight? And somebody <laughs> would say, it's strategic. And I'd say, well, when did it ever make money? And they'd say, it never did. I'd say, how strategic could that possibly be, right? Yeah. And we've all yeah, had yeah, those conversations. Yeah. So the same thing's true in private equity. You know, when, you get, when you're part of a big bank and coming out of a big bank like they were, they had a little bit of everything. So they had some real estate in Latin America. They had venture in California. They had an Asia thing. They you know, had a lot all over Europe. But if you really did the study of where do you make money, right, about 120% of the profits came out of middle market private equity, consumer, industrial, and retail, right? Yes. So um, our consumer, industrial, and healthcare. So we focused just on North America, consumer, industrial, and healthcare. And over time, we just got really tight and really yeah. focused. Are, are you defining middle, middle market as like five to $50 million in EBITDA, or, or how do you Yeah, how do 50 you would that? be pretty small for kind of what we do. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, so I'd say it depends on the company, but um, that would be at the very small end. Okay. Uh, you know, that up to, you know, I don't know, probably the biggest we've owned is a billion. Okay. Even, uh, so, so, wow. so, but you know, more of them would be in the sort of, you know, 150 to 250 range and then you know like um, a couple of the businesses we've sold lately and you know when we bought them you know one of them was 130 and by the time we sold it it was 310 right so we've grown wow. it essentially over four or five years and the goal is to grow businesses yeah. i mean that yeah. is the goal it's uh, it's to grow businesses create jobs we got we got an, we got into a a one-on-one -on -one bake off with a zillow backed uh uh, private equity, uh, Zillowback subsidiary uh, last month, and it, it, the numbers just got crazy. Yeah. Just not crazy. And I'm realizing the people that have access to the capital markets, especially especially if they're not direct capital market related, they're you know they're going through a parent company yeah. as a subsidiary. 
they just really have no concept of what good business is, and they're just trying to acquire assets at yeah. will. And and you, you you guys don't don't make acquisitions like that. You're you're more more kind of medical industrial. Yeah, yeah, we're more we're more. Uh, uh, you know, we we will pay up for good businesses, but we'll not. You know, we're not uh, you know buy on buy on a, a multiple of revenue people, right? So, yes. uh, yeah. you know, we're real earnings, real cash flow. Yeah. Uh, I wish, quite honestly, we were good at investing in technology. We are great at doing digital transformation of industrial companies or consumer companies or healthcare companies that are, you know, real companies. Sure. But you know, I, I wouldn't even have a clue what how to bet on the next next Facebook or the next uh, you know Amazon or Google or something. No. I wish I had that skill set. I'd be a lot wealthier if I did, and you know, we could give more money away. But, but so we try and stick to what we're good at, you sure. know, which are sure. North American consumer, industrial, and uh, and healthcare businesses. Yeah, I think the I think the old version of Benjamin Graham's intelligent investor that I that I have access to, I think their last data set um, on 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 sectors was from like 1926 to 1976, I think, mm -hmm. and. And he, he said that during a time of high inflation, which which what I think we're, we're yeah, starting we're, to get we're into clearly, towards, it looks like, yeah. uh, you want to get out of everything except for industrials. Yeah, and and, and you know maybe, maybe some some power companies, things like that, that have have some protected margin through uh, through regulatory yeah. um, requirements. But um, it, it it seems like tech tech may be a, a good place to. Uh, <laughs> to, to escape from right now. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, I don't I, I don't know. It's a, it, every time I think that, I uh, you know, it goes up some more. So <laughs> so I don't know. We we don't invest there, but uh you know, I'm in awe of the people that have gotten that right because they've uh they've obviously uh been able to see around the corner a little bit. That's right. That's right. Um so the uh, uh a few a few years ago, I was uh, I had this interesting uh, dinner. I had dinner with a with a young guy. He was in his 20s. We we're both in our 20s and and uh, there was a group that brought the 300 top CEOs from around the country to a, a one-week all-expenses-paid thing in South Beach, Miami, oh, wow. South Beach. Put us with the Ritz-Carlton. We, we thought we thought we were fancy stuff. And I had dinner one night with this with this guy in his 20s. He said, "Yeah, I just sold my I sold my company, my tech company, to AOL, and uh, and they they just ran into the ground for 18 months. So I bought it back, and I've got six million dollars left." And he said, "Rick, I'm just going to put this six million dollars into a into a bond and like." You know that, that'll be my retirement when I get to be 60 or 70 mm -hmm. or whatever it would be. He said, "I will never ever spend that six million dollars." So we we stayed in touch a little bit, and uh, and about probably three years later, I turn on the news. No, I know I see I see an article. I see an article that uh, this person was now the second wealthiest person in Canada uh, because he took that $6 million and founded a company that became known as Uber. Oh, wow. Wow. And, Fantastic. Uh, and so, so I've, been, I've been following at a distance where he'd buy, the, I think he bought a Malibu mansion for like $120 million or wow. something, something just insane like that uh, because there was that, that one more that One, one more, more to gamble. do, yeah. And uh, you know, uh, you know, Benjamin Graham, for instance, he, he would say that would be an idiotic thing yeah. to do to, to put you know high risk, you put put your last egg in and and, and put in a high risk basket. There. At least if you're going to do it, do it while you're young. That's right. That's yeah. right. You got time. You, you got, got time. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so how do you how do you mitigate risk, or do you even bother mitigating risk from from an investment strategy from from the private equity level? Well, I, th I think there's a lot of risk mitigation you can do. Um, uh, you know, currency counterparty, you know, you go through those. In 08, you know, everybody said, you know, mitigating risk really became understanding what banks you were actually working with. Yes. Right? So, uh, so you need to keep your eye on those kinds of things. And things that you don't think would matter right now, you know, like that, yeah. you know, kind of matter sometimes, right? right. So, so you got to pay attention to it. 
But um, um, in terms of hedging and stuff like that, we buy really good businesses that we think we can grow. And, uh, and then, you know, sometimes we'll take them public. We have three businesses that are public right now. And so we have some market risk, right, in, yes. in the stock. We won't hedge that out, but we'll, what we'll do is uh, once we take it public, we'll look to liquidate it reasonably quickly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to sell it out. So we'll, you know, we'll mitigate risk, uh, risk that way. And then, you know, personally, I think as you're looking at your own portfolio, you really just want to make sure you got a good balance of cash and, uh, and equities and, uh, and, and you're just balanced, right? Sure. You know, um, uh, it's probably just the same way you should eat your lunch as well. Make sure you eat a balanced lunch. Uh, That's right. Uh, or live your life, right? I think it's, uh, you know, all good things kind of, kind of come with, uh, with balance. But we're constantly looking at, um, you know, our debt maturities at, at, uh, at, at the end interest rates. rates uh, you can borrow so inexpensively now. But That's the right. one thing you can't do is, like, you're, you have to have a line of credit and you have to have your debt that actually matures, you know, long enough into the future that you have a, you know, you can execute your plan. I, I like saying private equity is like a long dated option, right? You have an option on a company for a very long period of time to make it better. You just don't want anybody shortening the date. That's right. Right. And that that's and right. that's where you get into kind of risk management. And, and you guys don't don't do any shorts. You're not a full hedging firm. We're not at all. We don't trade publicly. So it's uh, everything we okay. buy is uh, is private. We might take it public. Yeah. And then we have shares to sell out because the company's become successful in public. But, okay. uh, but you're not buying tips or inflation adjustment no. securities to offset anything. OK. No. OK. No. Um, we um, we like we like to use uh, I'm, I'm old school investing yeah. strategy. And uh, I look to look for high regulatory businesses. Yeah. So, for instance, we have an elevator business. Yeah. Uh, we've got our, obviously a brokerage business. Yeah. No, there's but there's barriers to entry around those. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so and so, do you do you see these barrier, barriers barriers to entry businesses as worth higher multiples over time, uh, especially when you look at, at making the acquisitions initially and, and what you're going to uh, dispose well, it for? Well, if you go back and some of you kind of will recognize uh, Porter's Five Forces, right? You've seen that paradigm before. If you look at businesses through that prism, uh, you can actually understand what those barriers are. So they might be regulatory, mm -hmm. like an elevator company or, you know, or a uh, brokerage firm. It, it could be regulatory. There could just be market barriers because of technology or because of patents yes. or because of the competitive dynamics. So this business that we own now, Hayward, in the pool equipment business, there are three global suppliers of pool equipment, right? So it functions really, really nicely as an industry. Yes. Uh, there's a good, healthy you know, um, uh, competition, but, but it functions very, very well. So you, you can actually look at businesses and say, what are the barriers to entry, the barriers to exit? Um, and uh, competitively, how is that going to function? Certainly regulatory barriers are one. There are other barriers, yes. right, in technology or in market share capital. or capital availability or, you know, manufacturing capability. Um, but those businesses that do have those barriers around them, right, where, you know, People can't enter, you know, quite as quickly. Real estate's an interesting one because uh, if somebody can get a permit, say in Houston, Texas, where we are, there's not much zoning. That's right. You can pretty much build. So you probably ought to pay attention to what permits are being filed before you put up another big office building, right? You That's know, right. you know what's what's kind of going to come on the market, right? So I'd say the barriers there aren't all that high, right? So you need to understand it a little bit differently. But, right. but, and there are a lot of businesses like that. The oil and gas business is the perfect example of that, right? The, um, 
what you're producing is a pure commodity, right? There's no differentiation to That's speak right. of. So you better make sure your cost structure's in line, you've got you know, access to, the, to the, the best transportation and all that kind of stuff, where in something that has a barrier, like you're talking about, like the elevator business, you have a few more degrees of freedom yeah, because the chance of getting disintermediated there are just a lot lower. That's right. That's right. Yeah. My my favorite business uh, we have a, we have a federal government business, yeah. and uh, we 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 manage very very complex um, real estate related uh, uh, projects for them that also require a software component. So yeah. we have to be able to capture the data, control the data, um, and uh, and and be able to have a little bit of a of a of a, a captured audience, at least over five year, you know, trying to get these five five year yeah. renewals over time. And, and that's been my favorite business because the government is so difficult to work with. Yeah. They are so, so impossible to work with. And they don't realize that whenever they open up competition, they're going to get better pricing, they get more competition, we're going to get better quality over time. And that, that's, the, that's the ironic thing. Like these guys have never read any uh, Federic Basiat or, or anything like that. that just just free, you know, free market principles. If you yeah. apply them to the, to the federal government, they're going to work. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, there's there's a lot of examples of that we own a business in Canada that's an integrated facility management business. That the project side, they'll go in and retrofit buildings yeah. with high LED lighting and high efficiency HVAC and windows and insulation. Uh, and then on, uh, but their most of their business is actually managing that remotely, right? So they'll put sensors in. They have you know several thousand HVAC technicians in Australia, the US, Canada, and the UK, and they dispatch you know, to do that, but they cut the electricity usage of the businesses so tremendously, and they win every ESG award you know, because of that. But that's got a really significant barrier to entry because you've got the, you know, uh, getting skilled labor right now is so hard. It is. So if you actually own the skilled labor and you own the software package and the IT that allows you to monitor the sensors, to control the contracts you get are very long, and the uh, customer retention rate is over 99 percent. Yeah, because yeah. of the value you're providing. So that's another kind of example, like you're talking about, of just a business that it might not look to have a barrier that's totally regulatory, but it has a practical barrier because the customer service provided that's just fundamentally sound. Yeah, yeah. The, the big ESPCs like Sylvania Energy Service Performance Contracting Companies that did yeah. sort of that back in the back in the early 2000s really cleaned up. Yeah. I mean, they, they did really, really they're well. Good. They're good businesses, and they do well by doing good, right? You yeah. Know, so they're yeah. actually reducing carbon footprint as well. So you, say, you said on the personal level um, is, is the inverse from the, the business level. Businesses, uh, you think money in, not money out. Personal level, you think money out, not money, money in. in yeah. uh, alluding to a, a concept, a philosophy of, of generosity as a as a mechanism, really to, to solve your our, our our natural greed as as people. Yeah. No. You know. It's. Uh, yeah. Exactly. No. I think uh, obviously that the Christian philosophy certainly backs that up. There's a lot of verses in Matthew and throughout the Bible. In fact, money's the number one thing talked about. Yeah. In the Bible, and God tells us you can either you know love me or money, but not both. And and, uh, you know, it's really what tithing is. It's really fasting from money so it doesn't become a controller. It can be a, a wonderful servant or a relentless master. That's right. So, um, uh, so basically, uh, uh, but paying forward and, and, and making sure God doesn't need our money, but we, we need to, uh, we need to, to give it to help others. Uh, sure. And, but you don't even have to, if, even if you're not Christian, if you're, you know, an enlightenist or an atheist, uh, and you still go through the literature, uh, you know, everybody uh, 
really does believe that giving alms to the poor and helping those less fortunate is super important uh, right. for our own mental well-being. That's right. Uh, as as well as obviously to help out, but but uh, but it's it's just super yeah. super important. Some some of my business partners, some of my best friends are Hindus. Yeah. And uh, they they are very good. Very at, generous. At helping yeah. helping yeah. with the poor. Uh, and uh, one of the one of the the ideas about generosity is something that Randy Alcorn talks about in one of his books. I don't think it's a book on heaven. I think it's maybe the, the treasure principle where he he uses Luke twelve thirty four yeah. as an example. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. also. And he yeah. says you can direct your heart, if you put your treasure there first, that the heart literally follows the treasure. Yeah. There. No, I think he's probably absolutely you know, right on that. And um, we've actually for years and years now, probably 15, over 15 years, we've given away uh, money as a family. So we have our whole family involved in it. And uh, our kids are all responsible for certain philanthropies that we've decided under our family mission to support. And we use Christmas Day for that, Rick. So we, uh, we have a family meeting on Christmas Day. We have... Uh, we do the Christmas story and, uh, and open a few presents, have some brunch, and then we spend the rest of the day actually going through and uh, allocating what we're going to give away as a family that year. And that's kind of wow. how we spend Christmas Day. And that's actually added a whole new meaning to Christmas uh, to uh, sort of focus in on others versus on, you know, on yourself. And, sure. uh, and uh, our kids who are now not kids anymore, they're 32, 30, and 28, uh, are really, really good at doing this. So they, uh, they're, they're responsible for, you know, bringing, uh, for, you know, bringing an annual report for the charities we support and actually for recommending others. The only rule now is that they have to, if they recommend one, they also got to make a recommendation of wh which one to drop. Because wow. there's only so many you can actually, you know, support well. And, and it's time, talent, and treasure. It's not just treasure. So it means you have to be able to spend a little bit of time on it. Too. That's right. And that's the big challenge of the Christian life. And that's what makes the Christian life really unique from the rest of yeah. religions is it's a, it's a faith in which demands all, the whole person. Yeah. It demands the intellect, demands the life, it demands the personality, it demands the, uh, the effort and the work. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so there's a there's a great uh, there's a great group of private equity guys uh, in the Manhattan area because I, I, you spend a lot of time in Manhattan. It sounds yeah, like. still, still still not not in the last year, but prior to that, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. So they, they they wrote a I think a couple of the guys wrote a book uh, based off their 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 case study with the Robin Hood Foundation. Yeah, and so uh, are you are you familiar with this at all? I am not familiar with the okay. book, but I, I know the Robin Hood Foundation. I know that I know the New York community pretty well. Okay, okay. So so it's really unique because they were trying to figure out they've got this mission to to help bring people out of poverty, yeah. and they're funding grants uh, around uh, around things like education, mm -hmm. uh, prenatal care, uh, after school programs. Uh, even making sure if people have food that's yeah. necessary, and so they had to try to quantify all this and how to how to roll it all up to their to their mission, and so they they go through the, go through the statistical analysis of how they do that on a, from a giving spectrum and how they rate each of these individual efforts in here because they're issuing 100, 200, 300 grants a year and how do you, how do you get all that to roll up and, and deploy capital in a in a in an efficient measurable format, and uh, I really like the ingenuity that business guys like you yeah. and they take to the nonprofit space because it seems like a lot of the really sharpest the, a lot of the sharpest business guys are stuck in focus on business yeah and and they don't really use their talent yeah uh, to, to, to serve nonprofits yeah we've enjoyed I enjoy doing that so um, uh, you know in the in the things we support we we try and help out as well and sort of making sure there's uh, there's really sound business principles and even 
um, inventing some things that they can do or say, giving them some ideas of some programming. Because uh, ultimately, you want the programming to be self-sustaining, right? That's right. Uh, if you're just donating and um, there's not something, that's why, you know, my Uncle Lyle had this uh, basically giving philosophy of uh, creating jobs was kind of behind everything he did. He thought you could speak into somebody's life if, you, if they had a job and their family was taken care of. So we've kind of adopted that too. So almost everything, all of our giving is focused on creating jobs, whether it be in Honduras or you know, wherever we're doing uh, that kind of work. And, um, uh, and, and, and that actually enables itself for you to set up a mechanism where you say, if we're going to do something, ultimately at the back end of it, it has to be self-sustaining. That's right. Right, because if it's not, it'll just go away. Right. Once the donation stops, you're done. Exactly. Essentially. And so we're always trying to think about, you know, how do we uh, develop models that uh, we can seed the funding and, you know, start the process. But, you know, by, you know, second generation of it, it's uh, it's got a self-sustaining model. Sure. Right? Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I was I was in Honduras with Kyle. Oh, did you go down there a, a, okay. few, a few years ago with him? And he was telling me a little about a project that you guys I think I think you guys had worked on. Maybe a farm-to-market type of a Yeah, we, we, we have two really pretty big projects going on there. We've been down there. We've done this with the Nath family, Bill Nath okay. and, and Cody and yeah. you know, folks you mentioned before, uh, where uh, the first one in the origin uh, was a uh, project called Thrive, where you would take communities that didn't have any water at all, you know, were walking you know, miles to get dirty water, and you'd work with them to drive water into their community. They would build the cistern. You'd uh, work with the engineers in Honduras to, to pull the water over mountains or from streams or wherever you needed to to fill the cisterns. And then with PVC piping just laid out over the, the floor of the forest, you'd actually take it to their individual homes and to fields. Off of that, then we set up communal farming. So the whole community would come, and instead of making substance farming around their house with a little bit of corn and coffee, and you know, but really just for their consumption, they were living on about a dollar a day. Okay, so um, uh, basically, you would start doing peppers and tomatoes and things like that that are much higher value added. And then Walmart was kind enough to come in, and we hooked up with Walmart and some others to pull that produce out of there. And that actually took the family up to about $16 a day. Wow. So instead of not being able to go to school, you know, walking everywhere, they have these little motorcycles and, and you know, they basically, their life improves quite a bit. And, uh, and life expectancy expands and, and uh, uh, they can feed their families. And, and they have some degree of uh, continuation of being able to do that because uh, when you're living on a dollar a day, if like there's a drought or there's a flood or, I mean, you're so close to you know, not, not existing that, you know, you don't have any margin, say. And then with some of them, and Cody really played a big role in this, we actually were able to drive them into coffee production and set up wow. this coffee co-op, which is called Cafe 504, which is the area code, well, the world country vision, code I think. for That's Honduras. World vision, it's world vision. This is all yeah. world vision. Yeah. And then actually um, send that coffee to Europe and to the U.S., gourmet-rated coffee. So those families are up to like $50 a day. Wow. Right. So you, know, you can see the progression. Right. And that's World Vision. So that's called Thrive, uh, you know, loosely. And then the other one, um, I was really perplexed as we were down there that we were doing this and able to do this in the rural areas, uh, but in the urban areas. And it actually helps with immigration, too, because they have great jobs down there and can take care of their families. They're not looking to come to the U.S. That's right. You know, that's uh, right. 
Um, and USAID is starting to get behind this now, which is just for the first time, which is great because uh, this, this will help solve that problem. The, uh, and then in the cities, though, there wasn't anything there. So we developed a program that we just conceptualized called RISE. And in that one, we didn't want folks to get trained to get a certificate, but the unemployment of youth is about 75% um, or something. I mean, it's incredibly high. That's why they're all in gangs, and it's a very dangerous place. But we worked with the churches, and, um, and we went to the business community and developed job training for youth from, say, 15 to 25. And uh, we started with 1,000, um, and we're now, I think, this year going to do, I don't know, between five and 10,000. Uh, but youth that kind of come through this program, we're actually training them in what the businesses want in decision-making and that wow. kind of thing. And then they actually graduate, and about 60% um, of them actually end up going into business jobs that the businesses have ready for them. So the franchisees, the movie theaters, the banks, the retail establishments, the cell phone uh, companies are all hiring these graduates, and they really want to get a hold of them. And so the self-sustaining part is now we've asked them, what does it take you to train an employee? Because they say these are the, our best employees. They've been trained. And they say like 2,800 to train and hire a good employee. So they say, we said, if you give us the 2,800, we can create this self-sustaining loop of training people and sending more and more people out all the time to, as employees. And so that allowed people to leave the gangs. And the gangs were very supportive of this because they want their brothers and sisters not to be in the gang. And yes. if they go to church to get trained, they really do respect the churches. So it's been organic, but it's actually really developing into something cool that's now getting exported across the triangle. And ultimately, World Vision serves 100 places, 100 countries, so it can wow. get exported around the world. So, but that's the kind of creativity that if you just see the problem and you say, you know, this might be work, you're working in the rural areas, but the urban areas are just, and everybody moves to the city. That's right. So you have to have a solution for urban. Too. Yeah, that's so, right. So anyway, that's just one yeah, example yeah. of kind of create a job kind of stuff. So one of, one of my friends, uh, when he found out that I was uh, going to be, be able to have a conversation with you, he said, ask Greg about purpose and, and, and really how you would define, uh, define the, the, the life that, that is one lived with purpose and ultimate, uh, ultimate value in the end. How, how would you measure that? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, I got asked by a group of CEOs I was talking to if you you know in, early in COVID, like if you could define managing in a time of crisis in one sentence, what would that be? And that's kind of hard to do. But I think God placed on me. I, I said, you know, leadership or uh, leading in a time of crisis is all about absorbing fear and exuding hope. That's right. Right. That's and true. so I think if we think about purpose in, in a little bit the same way. You know, what we're here to do, I really think as business people, we're here to create jobs. But if you can absorb some people's fear, right, because everybody's always fearful of what is that change in my life? What's the next step I have to take? Uh, you know, all the way down, if you're in Honduras, it's am I going to you know, have food to eat tomorrow? I mean, it gets very basic, right? That's right. Uh, and you can exude some hope of here's a way actually to the other side, right, to improve and uh, and succeed and, and, uh, and feel the success that comes from, you know, working hard and achieving, uh, then, uh, you know, I think you've actually, you've kind of created purpose. So it's, it's, I don't know if that's a great definition of purpose, but I think if you can help do that with people, if you can help absorb fear and exude hope, that's right. Uh, there's a lot of purpose in that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I want to I want to wind down with uh, sort of the merger of, of two different two different concepts. Uh, I think probably eight, nine, ten years ago, Kyle stuck me on a list of a you you hosted dinner. You and Britt hosted dinner yeah. every uh, October and November yeah. time frame yeah. of I don't know fifty or sixty Houston CEOs. area CEOs. Yeah. And, uh, and you always bring in a great speaker. I think maybe four or five years ago, uh, one of the themes there was uh, uh, taking, taking this verse out of Matthew, I think maybe Matthew chapter 11, where it talks about the kingdom of God is being stormed by violent men, and, mm -hmm. and, and these violent men are, 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 taking, are taking, and there's some different derivatives based off of what translation you use. Paul, Paul puts it a little bit of a different way in uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10, maybe 9, where he says we're all running a race, but there's yeah. only one person that's going to win. Yeah. So you've got to work to be that one person. I mean, you're going to exclude a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. You've got to beat people to be mm -hmm. to be first, and that's the, and that's the the challenge. And almost a, if you believe in authority from Paul, he, he's mm -hmm. closer to God for it than, than we were than when we are, and so we we ascribe authority to Paul. And so that's sort of an indirect command there that we've got to be first, uh, first or last, as as uh, the, the famous Ricky Bobby said. Uh, so uh, we've got these two different. Auras of aggression that are pent up in our in our in our Christian scriptures there, and, and you, you you took that theme very very well and 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 gave a challenge to the CEOs in that room, and as I look and I and I see the work that you're doing, using your influence to effectuate change in CEOs all over the country, uh, through your books, um, through the books that you give away, mm. I think every year, and the conversations that you have throughout the year with them, what is what is your mindset? What is your what is your passion like for these CEOs in, in trying to effectuate change that are that, that's eternal change, not just change within businesses and organizations? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think we all have a, a calling to a higher purpose, right? And uh, you know, what Paul tells us is to run the race, right? Uh, and uh, you know, make sure at the end of the race, you know, what we're trying to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. That's so, right. I don't think that means edging a lot of other people out. I think it means. Uh, if you can encourage people to run that race with you, uh, it's a lot more fun running in a pack yes, uh, it than it is uh, running alone, right? So, uh, so, so I think uh, you know, I think doing that's important. But, uh, but I think uh, God has given us, and it's part of work. He's given us each a platform in the world. Mother Teresa had a platform to serve orphans in Calcutta, right? That's not the platform. Uh, you know, you or I probably have, right? That's I mean, right. God hasn't called us to that, but he's given us a platform of people and, and things around us that we can hopefully influence uh, for the better, for, for his, uh, to his glory and to, for his kingdom, right? So uh, that, that really is the whole point of that dinner is encouragement of each other. It's not yes. so much, you know, uh, you know, Brit or I or anybody else encourage, you know, just encouraging people, but it's actually the camaraderie that comes from uh, you know, being able to actually passionately pursue uh, just a better life and a better world for other people together, right? Um, sure. And uh, and to have them reach their full potential in uh, in God's calling for them, right? So whatever that platform is, that's right. That's there's right. a there's a famous story, and and uh, I've heard it repeated a bunch. I you know didn't witness it personally, but uh, there was a guy that heard about Mother Teresa's ministry in Calcutta. A business guy, and he was so moved by it, he sold all his possessions and uh, and moved over there to help in the orphanage. And he got there, and she wasn't there, but so he just started working. And for I don't know five or six weeks, he was scrubbing floors and helping out, et cetera, et cetera. And she finally came back from her travels wherever she was, and she came in the room. And I guess Mother Teresa was like five foot tall, but really commanded a lot of presence, right? You know, just had this aura about her. 
And um, so she said, son, what are you doing? And he said, uh, you know, he explained the story a little bit. And she said, no, son, I know who you are. He said, she said, son, she said, uh, you know, and I've heard your story. Uh, she said, son, I got to be honest with you. You're terrible at this, right? You know, he, <laughs> she said, Calcutta is what God called me to do, right? This orphanage. Wow. You need to go find your own Calcutta. And uh, I think to some degree, we've all been called by God to, uh, to our own uh, missional assignment. That's right. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think if we can encourage each other and walk together and enjoy each other's company in doing that and make sure we're thoughtfully through mentorship passing it on to the next generation that God hopes we'll do it much better than we have because we've made a lot of mistakes, I'm sure, along the way. Yes. Uh, that, 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 I think, is what we're, uh, what we're called to do. So th that's kind of what that dinner is all about. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think about the first verse that you quoted was the, the verse from Paul that those who love God will be known by him. Yeah. And the last verse that you quoted was the verse from Revelation where our, our chief aim uh, in life is to get to the point where we're, we're in judgment and, or Christ eventually says to us, well done, good and faithful mm -hmm. service, welcome, welcome mm -hmm. in your kingdom. And the Westminster Catechism says that the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mm -hmm. And I can think of no greater, no greater glory that could be stowed upon uh, us as, as children of God than to be known by God, yeah. as, Lu as Lewis uh, eloquently states. And, and that, that, that appreciation, uh, we can't come to God except for as a child. Mm -hmm. And that, that appreciation that we receive as a child, good boy, good yeah. job, good mm -hmm. faithful servant, mm -hmm. enter into your, your father's That's rest. That's about as good as it gets. That's as good as it gets. Yeah. That's as good as it gets. And that seems to me that that, that, that that being the chief aim of our lives, no matter yeah. what we're doing, we're just going to get out there and get after it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then it's just a matter of, uh, of executing, and uh, we're all going to make a lot of mistakes. But, yes, you know, yes. We're yes. forgiven. Yes, great. <laughs> well, for, well uh, we're happy to have you as a Kansas boy here in Texas. Yeah, thanks. And, uh, Greg, I appreciate your time coming in, and, and thanks, for, thanks for your leadership and your influence uh, for the kingdom. Thanks, Rick. It was fun. Great. Thank you.